This Parsha podcast is dedicated in loving memory and Le'ilunishmas, David Gedalia ben Ephraim, the unforgettable David Jenikov of blessed memory, our dear friend, a dear personal friend, a dear friend of Torch, a friend of all who knew him. His first yard site falls out on this Thursday, which is the day that this podcast will be released. May his soul be elevated in heaven. And of course, our hearts are in the East. We, even though we may be far away, you know, our hearts are with our brothers and sisters in the war zone, and we're praying for their safety, and we're praying for the recovery of all the hostages, and for the safety of all the soldiers, and for the safety of all the people who are under constant rocket attack, and of course, for the speedy recovery of all the injured, and we are going to dedicate our Torah study today as well in their merit. And I will tell you, this week we got a little bit of a spark of light. The IDF went into Gaza and recovered one of the hostages, one of the soldiers, a soldier named Ori Medidish. I hope I'm not pronouncing that incorrectly. They went in and they and they got her. And we don't know any details, of course, but we do know that there were no soldiers that were injured and they were able to retrieve her. And I will tell you, I saw something so amazing. I wanted to just share it with you. So before they saved, they they recovered this hostage, of course, her family was beside themselves with, with pain and with fear and uncertainty. Can you imagine what it's like? You know, your young daughter just get kidnapped and is in Gaza with Hamas. Who knows what's happening to them? Who knows if they're even alive? So, of course, everyone's praying. And there's a long-standing understanding of the power of the mitzvah of separating challah. Of course, we know there's a mitzvah to separate challah. A portion of the dough goes to the Kohen. But that's a very powerful mitzvah. And when you pair that with with prayer, we we have a tradition that that can effectuate great, powerful impact in heaven. I saw a video of this Ori's mother, and she's together with her friends, I guess, her family, and she's fulfilling this mitzvah, and she's praying, and this this whole video, it's a two and a half minute video, and I've never, I don't think in my life I've seen someone pray like she prayed. She's completely spilling out her heart to the Almighty. And it's it's very emotional, very powerful. Everyone there is crying. It's hard to watch it without crying yourself. It's very powerful. I'm going to share a link in the description if you're interested in watching it. But it just, it was so moving to me to see. Of course, we're all trying to pray, but not all of us are in that situation. Not all of us, thank God, are, you know, have close relatives that are there that, God forbid, are captured. Of course, we're all a family and the whole nation would like a bunch of brothers and sisters. But still, and this video really, really touched me. And it's so powerful and moving knowing now that, that she was discovered and she was saved. But if you want to know what prayer really is, if you want to have a picture of what, what it looks like to actually spill out your heart completely before the Almighty, I would recommend watching this video. Of course, we're not the kind of people that could 
point and say, well, because of this mitzvah, because of this prayer, that's why. Obviously, this is very improbable. Quite improbably, she was saved, she was rescued, and she's perfectly fine. We're not going to say that any mitzvah or any prayer is, is guaranteed to yield miracles, but of course, we believe the prayer is very powerful. And this is a very, very powerful prayer, and it really, really moved me, and I'm sure it will you as well. So we're doing the Parsha podcast, and we have a new format. It's Dad, Deep and Deeper. We're trying to go a little bit deeper beyond the simple understanding of the Torah to try to get a little peek behind the curtains, beneath the veneer, behind the facade, in the subtext of the Parsha. I have to say, after a couple of weeks, I'm really, really liking it. I like that there are more segments. In previous years, it was one big segment and maybe a smaller one. I like that we have a bunch of different things that we could, that we could discuss. And I also feel like if it's not like a really big segment, I can kind of leave some loose ends that are unexplained. Maybe y'all can run with it and uh, try to figure out more on your own. But let's begin. This is Parshas Vayera. This continues, of course, the narrative of Abraham. We had Lech Lecha last week. Abraham goes to Canaan, travels all over Canaan. At the end of the Parsha, he circumcises. And our Parsha begins with the aftermath of Abraham's circumcision and the, the superlative act of kindness that he does with the three strangers, which turn out to be three angels masquerading as men. And then we have the whole episode of the uh, the Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and all that. And the Parsha ends, of course, there's a lot. There's, I'm skipping over a lot. But the Parsha ends with the 10th and final test that Abraham was tested with, the final trial of Abraham's 10, the binding of Isaac. And all three of our segments today are going to focus on this part of the Parsha. Abraham's told something quite inexplicable. He's told to take his son Isaac, regarding whom God said, this will be your legacy, he will be your heir, this is your heritage, the great nation will emerge from Isaac. And Abraham's told to go offer him as a sacrifice on some mountain, Mount Moriah. And Abraham does it without questioning God. And he even saddles his own donkey and they take the two youngsters, the two lads with them, and they have all the paraphernalia. They have the wood and the fire and the sharp knife, and they go. After three days, they arrive, and Abraham tells the other youngsters, the other lads, well, you stay here with the donkey. I will go up the mountain with Isaac. And they ascend the mountain. And the only conversation ever recorded between Isaac and Abraham in the Torah happens on the way up the mountain. Isaac asks his father, we have all the paraphernalia, we're just missing one thing. Where's the sheep? We're going to bring a sacrifice. That's great. We have all the materials for a sacrifice, but we don't have the animal. And Abraham reveals to him the you would imagine what would be very disappointing news. Well, actually, my son, you're going to be instead of the sheep. And nevertheless, they send together. So even though this is always portrayed 
in Scripture as a great test of Abraham's faith, in truth, it also demonstrates the greatness of Isaac. They arrive at the top of the mountain. This, of course, is Mount Moriah, also known as Temple Mount, where the first temple, the second temple, and please God, the third temple, may it be built speedily in our days, will be built in Jerusalem. Abraham constructs an altar. Abraham organizes the wood, and Isaac is bound atop the altar. And Abraham is about to do it. And he extends his hand to take the knife to slaughter his son. And the angel cries out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, Avraham, Avraham. And he says, Hineni, here I am. Don't touch Isaac. Don't even make a wound. Now I know that you are fearful of God and you have not withheld even your son from me. And Abraham's altar is not going to be barren. Abraham lifts his eyes and he sees that there is a ram that is struggling in the thicket. He takes the ram, he supplants it instead of Isaac. It is sacrificed. He renames the mountain. Abraham's given a wonderful blessing afterwards. And Abraham returns, most likely with Isaac as well, and they travel to Be'er Sheva. This is the episode of the Binding of Isaac. It's the tenth of Abraham's ten tests. Abraham's told to sacrifice Isaac. For three days, he is traveling towards the location. The Midrash tells us that that was not three easy days. It was a quite an eventful journey. The Satan was trying to disrupt Abraham and really Isaac from fulfilling this mitzvah, from withstanding the test, from triumphing in this great trial that the Almighty presented for them. They succeed. Abraham was really willing to do it. He stopped Abraham, Abraham, Hineni, and instead the ram is slaughtered instead of Isaac. Now, there's an interesting Rashi. Rashi tells us that when Abraham, when Abraham offered the ram, he prayed. And the nature of his prayer was that the offering of the ram should be considered in heaven, should be rendered in heaven as if he was actually fulfilling the original directive, and he was offering Isaac. And every step of this sacrificial process of the ram, Abraham prayed and said, let it be as if I did this to Isaac. And we know, we're told about this event, about this transcendent test of Abraham, this, whenever we invoke it, it unlocks a rush of divine mercy And for all time, whenever a nation invokes this event, we are spared from harsh judgment. In the words of Rashi, later on the Torah, it's like Isaac was actually offered as a sacrifice, and the ashes, so to speak, what would have been, the ashes of Isaac being offered as a sacrifice are always present before the Almighty. It's always piled up, so to speak, before the Almighty, and there's no need to even invoke it. But certainly we do, and much of our Rosh Hashanah prayer 
and of course the, the 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 horn that we use from the ram, the shofar, all that is to awaken and invoke the merits of this transcendent and superlative act of faith, the binding of Isaac done by Abraham and by Isaac. Now I want to focus on some different parts of this narrative. You'll notice, if you read the verses critically, that in several times, several times in the narrative, we see that Abraham is doing things together in unison, in conjunction with Isaac and later on with the two lads. So go to chapter 22, verse 6. The verse says that Abraham takes the wood and he places them upon Isaac, his son, and he takes the fire and he takes the sword or the, the knife and these two, Abraham and Isaac, they went together. Now, if that word yachtav, together, was not featured in the verse, the verse would make perfect sense. And they went, they went. Why does the verse end with the seemingly extraneous word yachtav? If it's an extra word, as we are learning, it must be it's telling us some sort of insight. So, of course, Rashi, he dedicates his comment to explaining why we have the apparently extra superfluous word. And he says that at this juncture in the story, Abraham has a different perspective of what's about to happen than Isaac does. Abraham knows, he's told by God, go offer Isaac as a sacrifice. Isaac is under the impression that this is an ordinary sort of sacrifice. We're going to have an animal. Yet they went together. Abraham, he knew what he's about to do. And he was happy. And he was joyous. And he was doing this as willfully as Isaac was. Even though, you imagine what this would be. I always tell people, if God tells you to go offer your son as a sacrifice, don't listen. If you hear voices in your head saying, go offer your son as a sacrifice, don't listen. But of course, we're not Abraham. Abraham, despite the fact that he waited a hundred years to bear a child, and God promised this child will be your destiny, with, will uphold your legacy, will fulfill your legacy. This is how you will become the father of a great chosen nation. And now God quite inexplicably is saying, go Go offer Isaac as a sacrifice. That, you would imagine, would cause even the great believer tremendous inner turmoil. But they went together. They traveled the Yachtav. They went together. Abraham was happy, was calm, was at ease because he was fulfilling the will of, of the Almighty. And he was exactly like Isaac, who didn't feel anything. He, he just thought this was a routine sacrifice of an animal. And then for seven and eight, Isaac discovers that he is going to be the sacrifice. This is no ordinary sacrifice of an animal. It's going to be you. And how does verse eight end? Vayelchu shnehem yachtav. The exact same way that verse six ends. They went together. Even at this point, now that Isaac is learning about what's about to happen, he too goes with Abraham. So if the first 
extra word of Yahdav, they went together, that exemplified the greatness of Abraham. In the second instance, in verse 8, where the verse says the seemingly extra word of Yahdav, of together, that seems to exemplify the greatness of Isaac. And here's the point of interest. At the very end of the story, this is verse 19, we have apparently a third instance where the word Yachdav together is featured in the verse. Abraham goes back to the lads and they traveled Yachdav together to Beersheba. This is a third instance where the word Yachdav together could have been omitted. And unlike the first two instances, Rashi doesn't offer any commentary. Rashi doesn't explain what the lesson of this extra word Yachdav is. What's the lesson here? Rashi established in verse 6 and verse 8 of chapter 22 that when we are told by people walking together, Yachdav, when it could have just says that they walked, the extra word Yachdav together tells us something of note, that they were of similar mind, they were of similar disposition, their their sentiments, their temperament was the same. Abraham, he knew he was going to sacrifice Isaac, and he went with the same temperament to Isaac. Oh, and Isaac discovers it, then he too is calm and willfully going with this project like Abraham. But then once it's all done, Abraham returns to the two lads. Rashi tells us that that is Ishmael and Eliezer. And they they go home. They got up and they, they went together. What is the lesson of the third instance of the apparent extra word of Yachtav? This is the answer that I suggested to my study partner on Sunday about this question. And it turns out I'm not the first one to think of it. Apparently, it's a well-developed idea. Some other people have come up with it. But I told him, so listen, I came up with myself. I'm claiming it as my own. So this is my idea. So maybe other people have said it as well. Okay. Abraham. He reached the apotheosis, the peak, the pinnacle, the acme of what any human has ever reached. And we'll talk more about this in a little bit. But Abraham triumphed on level 10 of the 10 trials of Abraham. He's building a certain spiritual edifice that will endure forever. He succeeded in a test that will bestow mercy and exculpation for his descendants forever. He reached the level where, where the angels almost viewed him as a peer maybe even as a superior. Abraham just did some transcendental spiritual experience. And he comes back down, and who does, who does he see? He sees Ishmael, son of Hagar, known for his marksmanship. He's a great shot with the bow and arrow. And Eliezer, a slave. You would imagine... 
Abraham is like an angel walking and he sees these two punks. He sees these two people and Abraham would just be on a different level and he wouldn't be able to associate with them. He would look down at them and say, I'm not going to walk with you. We're not going to be together in tandem. I'm like an angel and you're just a lowly human. But Abraham, notwithstanding his transcendent spiritual experience and what he accomplished and the angels and the the prophecy and the 10th trial and the incredible achievements, the spiritual achievements of the binding of Isaac. He didn't flaunt that. He was still able to engage with simpletons, with lay people, with a slave, with Ishmael. He was able to walk with them, to be immersed amongst them. To be, as there's a term for this in the Talmud, me'ur of imabrius, he's mixed in with humanity. The idea of someone being on an ivory tower, towering above everyone else. And then when they get together, a great person, they look down at the smaller people. That is not the quality of our greats. That's Bilaam. Bilaam is one who says, oh, I, I cannot speak to someone who is of a lower rank. I need to have only the higher officials, only the higher ministers. That is the way of Bilaam. The way of Abraham? Who is he dealing with in the Parsha? The three travelers who appear to be idolaters. God appears to him. And Abraham tells God, I'm sorry, I have to do this kindness with these three idolaters. And he's bestowing so much honor to them. And he's working so hard, running so hard, notwithstanding his very advanced age, how hot it is outside, the fact that he's a few days removed from his circumcision. Abram is someone who, notwithstanding his great spiritual accomplishments, feats, and stature, he doesn't lord of others. He's able to engage with others. And even after reaching the absolute top, on the mountaintop, on Mount Moriah, with the binding of Isaac, He's able to go yachtav together with these two simpletons. I think this is a very beautiful idea. When we achieve great heights in our spiritual pursuits, there is a great risk of having haughtiness, of having arrogance, of having hubris, of feeling superior, of lording over other people. And that's not the way of Abraham. That's the way of Bilaam. With every stage of our growth and development in our spiritual agenda, there must be a parallel, commensurate effort in acquiring humility. My grandfather, blessed memory, noted that the halacha is when we have our Amidah prayer, there are four times in the Amidah prayer, in the 18 benedictions, the 18 prayers that we say every day, multiple times. There are four times that we bow. If you are a high priest, the halacha states that you bow all 18 blessings. Once you level up, you're a higher level. With that must come an equal and parallel and commensurate level of humility. And if you're a king, when you bow, you don't just bow 
for the benedictions, for the blessings, you start the Amidah prayer with a bow and you remain bowed for the entirety, for the duration of the prayer. The way it is, once you ascend, once you arrive at a very high point, you must right away pair that with an advancement in your humility. Abraham, he reaches the absolute peak of any human ever since Adam. And what does he do? He goes Yachtav together with these other people, with Ishmael and with Eliezer. There's a story in the Talmud, the book of Shabbos, page 33b, about the great Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. He was hounded. He was being pursued by the Romans. So he went to a cave and spent 13 years in a cave. All they ate were some carobs from a tree that sprouted outside the cave and a small stream of water. And they submerged themselves up to their neck in dust. And they only got dressed for Shabbos and they studied all the esoterica of Torah. That's, of course, the great Rabbi Shumarichai, the author of the Zohar, one of the great heroes of the Mishnahic era. And the Talmud says that after 12 years, the Romans who were pursuing them, they just forgot about them and the, the people who were in charge died and Elijah the prophet came and he conveyed the message that it's okay to leave the cave. And you imagine what it's like, you know, leaving the imagine you were studying in a cave, all the secrets, the mysteries, the arcane, esoteric wonders of Torah for 12 years. And now you go out to the world and you see people selling fish in the marketplace and kids playing with marbles and sticks and people fighting about petty nonsense and people chatting about the news or politics or sports or pop culture. And the Talmud says that they just, they, they, they had this clash with society. They couldn't bear it. And these veritable angels came out and wherever they looked, all they saw were just people involved in all these petty pursuits. And wherever they looked, wherever their eyes went, just fire came out and kind of consumed all the, all the pettiness that people were engaging in. And then they hear a prophetic voice. Did you come out of the cave to destroy my world? Get back to the cave. And they return to the cave for another year, for a 13th year. And then they come out and they, they, they see someone traveling with two flowers for Shabbos, one for Zachar, one for Shammar, one for the mitzvah to remember the Shabbos, one to observe the Shabbos. And they say, okay, well, maybe there's something redeeming about this world. When you have a very high spiritual achievement, it's very hard to tolerate, to coexist with simpletons who are involved in pettiness. Abraham, he had this incredible experience binding of Isaac. And then he's still able to engage and to walk Yachtav together with the simpletons, with Ishmael and with Eliezer. What a beautiful insight. Segment number one, a deeper study 
of the achtavs, of the walking togethers of Abraham and Isaac, once Abraham and Isaac, twice, and then Abraham with the two lads. Here's the second segment. We're going a bit deeper. We went deep. Let's go a bit further. Abraham's about to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. And the verse tells us, verse 11, And the angel of Hashem called out from heaven. And he said to him, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am. And he tells him, don't touch the lad. Don't even make a small wound. Now I know that you've proven yourself. But there's a extra word again. The verse says, the angel called him. And he could have said, and he said, Abraham. And Abraham, you'd imagine, would respond. Why does it say Abraham, Abraham? Why is it repeated? So, of course, Rashi addresses this. And Rashi says that this is a term of endearment. Whenever God or an angel of God doubles the name of a person, that's a sign that heaven really, really likes you. I will point out that a few times in the Torah, we have this idea of someone being called by their name twice. And I think in all places, I didn't check all of them, but I'm pretty sure in all places, Rashi says the same thing. This is a sign that heaven really, really likes you. Okay, that's Rashi. There is a Midrash that enumerates the people who are double-named. So besides for Abraham, we have Jacob, chapter 46 of Genesis. When Jacob's about to go down to Egypt, the verse says that God called out to him, Yaakov, Yaakov, Jacob, Jacob. So these are, these are pretty significant players, heavy hitters, Abraham and Jacob. And there's more. There's Moshe. Moshe, Moshe, Vayomahineni, Moshe, Moshe, the great leader of our nation, the one who spearheaded the Exodus and split the sea and gave us the manna and ascended to heaven. Moshe, he has a very accomplished resume. Moshe is also double-named. And the fourth one, says the Midrash, that is the prophet Samuel. So this is not the Torah. This is later on in Jewish history. We have the book of Joshua and Judges, and then there's the book of Samuel. Samuel is the one who coronates the first kings of the nation, Saul first, and then David. Samuel is a very important figure in Jewish history. Why? Are these four people, Abraham, Jacob, Moshe, and Samuel, why are they double-named? The Midrash says something unbelievable, and this will be enough to be considered deeper, I think. The Midrash says, the reason why it says Abraham, Abraham, if you're just talking to Abraham, there's only one Abraham. So just say Abraham. Says the Midrash, that, actually, no, there's, there's not only one Abraham. There, there are two Abrahams. 
Because in every generation, says the Midrash, there's at least one person who is the Abraham of that generation. And when the angel of God is calling out to Abraham, he's not just addressing the ancient Abraham, our patriarch who lived 3,700 or so years ago. He's also talking to whoever is the Abraham of the current generation. There's going to be someone in every generation that has to undergo some sort of similar process to Abraham. They have a similar profile to Abraham. They have a similar narrative and storyline to Abraham. And they're going to have to overcome some tests in a way similar, in a way that resembles Abraham. And the angel, says the Midrash, is reaching out to that Abraham as well. And it says, Abraham, Abraham, not just Abraham, the original one, 1.0, but all the Abrahams throughout all the generations, because in every generation, there's at least one Abraham. And there's one Abraham, and there's one Jacob, and there's one Moshe, and there's one Samuel. That Midrash is just so amazing, so mind-blowing, so profound. And I think if we were to study this further, we would have to say, okay, let's look at the instance in which Abraham is double-named, and Jacob is double-named, and Moshe is double-named, and and Shmuel, Samuel is double-named, and see exactly in which area of these four luminaries is, is life you have their double name. Because if you are the Abraham, Jacob, Moshe, and Samuel of the generation, first of all, I appreciate your listening to the podcast. It's an honor. But it's interesting, I would imagine, to pursue that strand of, of this Midrash. Why specifically over here is Abraham double-named? But I think there's a different answer as to as to why there is this double name. So if Rashi tells us it's a term of endearment, the Midrash says, well, it's talking to more than one Abraham. There's a different answer. This is a very, very powerful idea. When this narrative begins, Abram's told, go take your son, your only son, one that you love, take Isaac, and offer as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. Rashi notes, again, there's an extra word. God doesn't say, take your son, your only son, etc. God says, take, please, kach, no, please. God is pleading with Abraham to do this. Why is God pleading with Abraham? So Rashi's, Rashi's question is intriguing. The answer is just baffling. God is pleading with Abraham. Please, please, please overcome, triumph in this test, in the final test of the 10 tests of Abraham. So that they don't say, we don't know who they is. So that they don't say, that the previous nine did not have any substance. If Abraham failed in test number 10, there could have been a legitimate claim that Abraham's whole story doesn't really have any pop to it, doesn't have any substance to it. And therefore God is pleading, no, please, Abraham, I, I don't want to lose you. 
Because if you fail this, you really are a failure in everything. So please succeed. Please take Isaac. And the part that's really baffling about this is that, you know, Abraham, he already had nine tests. And those tests were very, very, very difficult ones. And we've talked about this, of course, many times in the past. How can it be that had Abraham failed in this test, his whole storyline would be valueless, will have no substance? I will point out this is a question we've discussed a few times, I believe, over the course of the eight years of the Parsha podcast. You're going to hear something new today. Abraham's journey begins, of course, with the iconic words, Lech Lecha, go for yourself. The first of Abraham's ten tests was to leave Haran. This is the beginning of last week's Parsha. Leave Haran, go for yourself, leave your father's house, your birthplace, your homeland, and travel to parts unknown. Lech Lecha. It's important to note in our parsha, so not lech lecha, but vayera, in the last of the ten tests, it also says lech lecha. Verse two, God tells Abraham, take Isaac, well, take your son, your only son, the one that you love, take Isaac, vilech lecha, and go for yourself to Mount Moriah, offer him as a sacrifice upon the mountain. So Abraham's 10 tests are bookended with the words lech lecha. Now the word lech lecha, just in Hebrew, it translates as go lecha, which means to or towards yourself. You look at Rashi in the beginning of last week's parasha, lech lecha. Rashi explains that the word lech lecha is go for yourself, for your benefit, for your pleasure. I'm telling you to leave Haran. Don't think that that's to your detriment. Oh no, it's lech lechat for your benefit. Go for yourself. In Canaan, you'll become a great nation. You'll merit to bear children. Your message will proliferate. But when you translate these words literally, the words lech lecha, which we again see at the beginning of Abraham's journey and at the end, it means go towards yourself. What does it mean to go to yourself? Here's the idea. All of us are created with potential for greatness. But that greatness, it's, it's raw, it's, it's undeveloped. And there's a vast gulf separating who we start off as and who we become if we are to actualize our potential. Of course, there's a lot of work that separates those two. You start off and you really have a lot of potential, but it's, it's all in theory. To actualize it, that requires Tremendous efforts. In heaven, they know 
they know what you would become, what you can become, what you would look like in the event that you dedicated all your efforts and you deployed all your powers and all your abilities and all your skills and all the amazing qualities that you have, all your potential. What would you look like if you actualized every bit of your potential? We don't know, per se, because that's something we we don't have an insight, a window into that. But in heaven, in heaven, there is an understanding of what you would look like if you actualized everything. And there are indications that there's actually a replica. This is a scary idea. Scary. There is a replica of every single person in heaven. And that person is identical to the person that lives here. The only difference between the higher version of one person and the lower version, the heavenly versus the earthly version of that person, is that one of them, it's just potential. That's how it starts off. And it's up to them if they want to develop it. That's the lower version of every person. The heavenly version, the heavenly replica of ourselves, that is who we would be if we actualized every bit of our potential, if we utilized every opportunity that we had and that we have to become great. And when a person dies, the only judgment that they face is in the delta between who they became and who they could have become if they fully developed themselves. You get to meet yourself. Someone with the identical character profile, these same skills and same abilities, same background, same circumstances, everything's the same. But someone who really deployed all of their powers and all their abilities and all their qualities and all their skills and all their potential to its fullest. That is the judgment. The judgment is, did you become the person that you could have become? And that's quite terrifying. Because that really means that we're on the hook for all the immense potential that we all know that we have within ourselves. We're on the hook for that. And no one's accountable for not achieving things that were beyond feasibility. You're only judged as per who you are, meaning as that heavenly version of you looks like. The Midrash tells us that there was a version of Abraham in heaven. There was an upper Abraham, so to speak, a version of a man, a giant of a man, who would completely transform the trajectory of all of humanity. This person would become the father of the great nation, the chosen nation that would receive the Torah, and the nation that would be at the vanguard of the movement to fit the world with the kingdom of God, the nation that will eventually reverse the sin of Adam. Chapter 2. Genesis, Be'ibaram, says the Midrash, Be'avram, there is a plan for Abraham. There was always a heavenly Abraham. And how does the story start? Lech 
licha, go towards yourself. So Rashi, of course, says go for yourself. But we want to suggest another interpretation. Go towards yourself. Abram's being told, you, your lower self, your earthly self, your raw potential self, you must do what it takes. You must go under this path. You must undertake this journey. You must embark upon this journey towards yourself. Do what it takes to take your earthly self and bring it and march it and compel it down a path towards yourself, towards the heavenly version of yourself. That's what Abram was told. That's how his journey began. And there was a test. And there was a second test. And there was a third test. And these are all elements of Abraham's transformation from who he started off as to who he eventually became. After 62 years, Abraham is still being told, Lech Lecha, go towards yourself. You haven't quite reached the point where you are a match with your heavenly self. And you know what? If you don't succeed to a certain extent, all the previous nine tests, it's immaterial. God says, Abraham, please, Kachna, please don't fail. Because yes, you'll, you know, you got a certain degree of progress towards the journey, but ultimately the journey was Lech Lecha, go towards yourself. Go towards that heavenly Abraham that's going to change everything. That version of you, that replica of you in heaven, that's this transformative personality. Go towards yourself. And if you don't arrive, you have not gotten towards yourself. And therefore, to a certain extent, you failed. Abraham doesn't fail. He succeeds. He triumphs in this test. And what does the angel tell him? Avraham, Avraham, Abraham, Abraham. Both Abrahams are next to each other. The Abraham in heaven, that perfect, idealized version of yourself and who you are, the earthly Abraham, they've now, they've now joined. The lower Abraham and the upper Abraham are a match, are perfect matches of each other. Abraham completely went towards himself. And now he arrived at himself, his earthly self, and the heavenly self are one and the same. This is a really powerful idea. It's powerful because, and we've talked about this in the past as well, the commandment to go lech lecha, the Zohar says, we've spoken about this, we did a whole podcast on this a few years ago. That commandment is given to every single person. It's a universal directive broadcast to every single individual in the world. Lech lecha. Go towards yourself. There is a version of yourself. There's an idealized version of yourself. There's a version of you, of me. It's a terrifying thing. There's Yaakov Walby that really utilized, (laughs) this is scary to say, utilized all his talents and all his potential. And all his abilities. And that person is different than the current version here in the Torch Center talking to y'all. It's a scary thing. 
Because when you arrive in heaven, that's who you're going to meet. And all of judgment is wrapped into that. All of judgment. Look at what you could have become. And again, this is not someone else. This is you. This is me. This is a scary point. Because we all know that we're capable of so much more. In my notes, I wrote about this idea. I said, this is, this is weapons grade. <laughs> this is, this is a powerful, powerful insight. I, I'll, I'll tell you, as I mentioned in the past, I'm writing a book about this subject, how to develop your potential, how to discover your life mission, how to actualize yourself. And the past two weeks, I've been debating you know, when we, with this, this whole insight of Abraham, Abraham. I'm debating where to put this in the book. On one hand, I think I want to lead with it. This should be the introduction. This is the beginning because this is what we're trying to do. Figure out what our potential is and figure out how do we actualize it. But I'm worried it's a little too powerful. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do. We're going to have to decide about this. There is a there is a prayer that we that we say. It's a custom to say a prayer at the end of the Amidah prayer. It's a verse from scripture that matches your name. Everyone has to know their name. And there are sources that talk about how the punishment of the heavenly tribunal, really even in an earlier stage, in a process known as chibut hakever. The judgment that people face, it's all about do you know your name? Did you develop yourself? Did you discover your essence? Did you take all the tools and the skills and the abilities that the Almighty gave you, the Almighty bestowed upon you in His benevolence? Did you use that to actually discover your name, who you really are, your heavenly name? Not just your identity that you had. And pulling out your ID card, that won't resolve the question of the angels. What's your name? The question is, what's your heavenly name? What's your Abraham? Not your Abraham, Abraham version of yourself. This is a powerful idea. And it's a, it's a scary idea. It's a terrifying idea. But it's also, I think, a, a bit reassuring. It's a bit comforting. Because there's nothing that you will be expected to do that you're not able to do. The only things that you are held accountable for are the things that you are eminently capable of. And of course, we all know the reason why it's terrifying because we all know we're eminently capable of a lot more than we, what we're currently doing. We all know that. And that's why it's scary. But it's also a bit reassuring. A bit reassuring. And again, this is this is deep and deeper. This is not coddle and coddler. So this is not coddling, not for me either. I'll tell you, it's it's a this this past two weeks I've been thinking about this idea. It's not a pleasant thought, but it might be a very productive thought because we all have greatness within us, and it's our job to match, to match, match our Abraham to Abraham, 
Our, our Yaakov to Yaakov, our Moshe to Moshe, our Samuel to Samuel, or whatever our name is. Put your name in it. Put your name and say, this is a directive to you. There's a version of you. Again, you, 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 not someone else. You in heaven. And you will get to meet you in heaven. But it may look very differently than how you here looked like. It's, there's a long journey of Lech Lecha going towards yourself, of taking the raw potential and actualizing it to its fullest. Okay, we're already very deep into this podcast and the third segment, it's the deepest of them all. We'll do it uh, quickly, uh, A, because it's at the end of the podcast and only the diehards are left, and B, because it's so mysterious, it's so deep, I don't profess to understand it. But of course, they never really stopped me. Let's go. Abraham was going to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. And we get a description of all the things that he was doing. He was bringing with him the, the donkey and the, the lads and they, they took the, the knife and the fire and the, and the wood. And the verse says, this is chapter 22, verse 9, and then verse 10. They arrived at the place, and Abraham built the altar, and Abraham organized the wood, and he bound his son Isaac, and he placed him upon the altar, mima'al la'itzim, on top of the wood. So there's three levels here. You have the altar, that's made out of stone. And on top of the altar, Abram put the wood. And then on top of that, he put Isaac. The verse says, Vayasem Oso, he placed him, Isaac, on the Mizbeach, on the altar, but Mimalates him on top of the wood. And then the next verse, verse 10, what does it say? Again, we were doing this a little deeper, so we have to really hone in on the words and see maybe what they're telling us or what they're implying. Vayishlach Avraham es yado. And Abraham, I will just translate this literally. Abraham sent his hand. He sent his hand. And he took the knife, the sword. With the intention of slaughtering his son. This verse has a lot of extra words. The verse says that Abraham extended his hand. He sent his hand and he took the knife. The verse could have very easily been shrunk a little bit. Abraham took the knife. What does it say? Vayishlach Avraham Abraham sent his hand. He used his hand as a messenger. And he took the ma'achelas. He took the, he took the knife. The Kabbalists, <laughs> unbelievable. They find an amazing and obscure connection. Going all the way back to the aftermath of Adam's sin in the garden. Chapter three of Genesis. Adam does a sin, and uh, they're all punished. Adam is punished, Eve is punished, the snake is punished. And then we have verse 22 of chapter 3. And this is a very easy verse for me to remember. 
3.22, which is like March 22nd, which is my anniversary. 3.22, very easy to remember. And God said, Behold, man is like one of us to know good and evil. So what that means again, all, all the whole Genesis narrative, it's very hard for us to understand, it's all Kabbalistic. But let's read a little further. And now, maybe he will send his hand, those words, he will send his hand, just remember, those are the same words that it says about Abraham. He will send his hand and he will take also from the tree of life and he will eat from the tree of life and he will live forever. After Adam's sin, it was not possible for him to take from the tree of life. The only way he could have eaten from the tree of life is before he ate from the tree of knowledge. Again, what does this even mean? It's so mysterious. But we know he had the option. He could have eaten from the tree of life. He didn't. He chose the tree of knowledge. But now that he ate from the tree of knowledge, it's too late. He can no longer eat from the tree of life. And therefore, he is booted from the garden and he is banished and he's sent east of Eden and God placed the cherubs with the flaming, swirling sword to guard and protect the way of the tree of life. Again, what this means, we don't even know. But what we do know, just at a very simple, basic level, after Adam sinned, he was rendered unable to eat from the tree of life. And we've talked about this in the past. Maybe there's a workaround. The Torah, after all, is called Eitz Chaim He. It is a tree of life for those who grasp it. And we've pointed out in the past, the word cherubs, kruvim, they appear in two contexts in the Torah. Here we have the cherubs are like the angels guarding the path of the tree of life. And of course, the cherubs appear atop the ark, the Aron, in the Mishnah, in the tabernacle. And inside, of course, the ark is, is Torah. So Torah is called the tree of life. And just like the tree of life in the garden is guarded by the cherubs, the tree of life in the ark is also guarded and protected by the cherubs. So Torah, the power of Torah, is maybe a workaround, a loophole, a way to eat from the tree of life, notwithstanding the ill effects of Adam's sin. But it's amazing. There was a concern that Adam will extend his hand, will send his hand and eat from the tree of life. And that's the way to be banished. And here, Abraham is placing Isaac on the altar above the wood, but in, in Hebrew, the word for wood and the word for tree are the same. So the verse says that Abraham put Isaac on the altar on top of the Eitzim, on top of the trees. And then Abraham is extending his hand and taking the knife. The commentators tell us, Abraham, in this deed, in this triumph, in this trial of the 10th trial, the binding of Isaac, he achieved a spiritual designation, a spiritual standing that was a rectification of Adam's sin in the garden. 
Before Adam's sin, he was able to eat from the tree of life. He was able to extend his hand and take from the tree of life. It's only post facto. After he sinned, after he ate from the tree of knowledge, then it's a problem. Maybe he'll extend his hand and eat from the tree of life. So we have to banish him. Abraham is doing something above the trees and he's extending his hand. Say the Kabbalists, those extra words, the extra words of chapter 22, verse 10. Abraham extended his hands. The same words that, that was the concern with Adam that he'll extend his hand. That's a revelation of what Abraham achieved on a spiritual level. He achieved a rectification of the sin of the tree of knowledge. He achieved a rectification of the sin of Adam, and therefore he was able to extend his hand above the trees. He was able to extend his hand to the tree of life. I will tell you, of course, this is something we don't even know what this even means. What does it mean, the tree of life? What does it mean, the cherubs? What does it mean, the flames of the swords? What does it even mean, the, the tree of knowledge? All of this is a mystery. But what the Kabbalists are revealing to us is that Abraham, in this test, he achieved a level that spiritually resembled Adam before his sin. This fits nicely with what we said earlier. Abraham, the lower Abraham, and Abraham, the higher Abraham, they matched. But it's a beautiful idea. It's a beautiful, beautiful idea. And of course, this is one that we could speak a long time about. In my other show, one of my other shows, Torah 101, I did a, a whole podcast on the soul, the soul of Adam, and what happened to the soul of Adam after he sinned, and how Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they each rectified a different element of Adam's sin. And here we see how Abraham, he rectified the sin of Adam, and thus he was able to eat from the tree of life, he was able to extend his hand to the tree of life. He was as if Adam would be before he sinned. Again, so I want to I want to clarify that this alone is a great mystery. But I want to kind of talk a little bit more. And I know we're going over time. I try to keep this. I was hoping this year to do like, oh, we'll do it short. We'll do 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes. Too much work to have y'all listen so long and have me record so long. How much can you really listen to this one wallby guy? Now we're way over an hour already. Okay, so I apologize. But just a little bit, what exactly is so powerful with Abraham's triumph in this test? We get a little hint to it in verse 5. Abraham tells the lads, the youths, you stay here with the donkey, and I and the na'ar, the youth, meaning Isaac, will go ko. We'll go till ko, till there, I guess. You would translate it. Finish we'll bow down, and we'll return. So Rashi notes, first of all, that uh, Abraham is prophesying, maybe unwittingly, that they will both return. Okay. But the verse says, Nelcha ad ko, we'll go to ko. Ko means thus, or, or this, or there. It's a hard word to translate. 
because it it's a a word that maybe could be translated in a few different ways. But Rashi pulls out something just magical. Rashi says the word ko appeared last week. Abraham was taken above the stars. He was taken outside, go count the stars. Can you count them? You can't count them, right? Ko ye zaracha. Your children will be like the stars. When Abraham is going up the mountain and he assigns the designation, this will be ko. Nelcha ad ko will go to this point of ko. Says Rashi, we're going to reach the point that Abraham, that Abraham was promised, that God promised Abraham, ko yezeracha, your children will be ko. Meaning that Abraham was going to be a father of a great nation. And that nation was going to do a lot of work, a lot of progress in fixing the world, in restoring the kingdom of God in the world, in fixing and rectifying the, the sin of Adam. This event, this binding, is going to achieve everything that the nation was destined to do. God said, Ko Yezerach, your children, your descendants will be Ko. Abraham says, I'm going to go Ad Ko. That was all achieved by this incredible trial of Abraham. And when we look at what the commentaries tell us, the commentaries stress that this binding of Isaac for Abraham to achieve the great heights, but really for the nation. Ever since this event, our nation is on a different level. We've already, so to speak, achieved what the nation was destined to do. Of course, there's still work for us to do. And the beauty of it is that Abraham did the co and achieved what the nation is destined to achieve on a spiritual dimension. And Isaac still survived. And we can advance even further. A very powerful insight. Again, there's a lot more to talk about over over here. And of course, this really gets into territory that's uh, even deeper than uh, dad than year eight of the Parsha podcast. A very powerful, powerful insight. The binding of Isaac. We're learning all sorts of insights. There's the Yachtav point. Abram is walking together with Isaac. Again, they're walking together. And then Abram's walking together with Eliezer, with Ishmael. He is not someone who is removed, who towers above others, who says they're superior, is able to integrate with other people. We have the Abraham, Abraham. Idea number two, very powerful. The weapons rate idea. The idea that every person has a parallel, a replica, a doppelganger in heaven, but one who has achieved and unlocked every bit of their potential. And that's what everyone's being told. Lech lecha, go to yourself. And if you don't finish the job, well, you, you haven't matched with the heavenly Abraham. And therefore, to a certain extent, you did a lot of great things, but ultimately, you have fallen short. 
And finally, this incredible idea that Abraham is extending his hand in a way that Adam was forestalled from doing because of his sin. Abraham is achieving with this what the nation is destined to achieve. He achieved the co in this ascent of the mountain. He rectified the sin of Adam and our nation. And really, all of humanity is forever changed as a result. I appreciate your attention. I apologize for going so long. This was a delight and a joy. It brings me tremendous satisfaction. It's really meaningful for me to study Torah, to study the Parsha with y'all. Year in, year out, week in, week out. I'm in the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. It's nighttime. There's no one else around. It's really wonderful, wonderfully quiet here. Sometimes when I'm recording, this car is outside beeping. There's a nice restaurant, kosher restaurant next door. So uh, for some reason, people love to beep outside when I'm recording. Oh, Wolby's recording. I see it by the microphone. Let's go make a make a, a salvo of, of beeps. It's all quiet here. This was a delight. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Again, we're dedicating this this podcast in loving memory of our, our dear friend, our unforgettable friend, David Jenikov, David Gadali Ben Ephraim, whose yard site is on the day this podcast has been released. And we hope that his soul is elevated in heaven. He loved the Parsha podcast. He would listen every week. I'm sure he would have loved this one as well. And of course, we're never forgetting about our brothers and sisters in Israel. We're praying for them and we're hoping that they are safe and they're successful. And of course, all of us are increasing our prayers and our Torah study and our mitzvot and our kindness and our charity and our unity with each other during these times. We hope to only hear good news from our brethren and from all of Israel and from all of y'all. And of course, my email address is Rabbi Walby at gmail.com. Have a great day. Have a wonderful week. Have a terrific, terrific Shabbos upcoming. And please, God, with the help of the Almighty, we'll once again talk next week.